Thank you for joining us. This is Community Conversations with the Deltas, hosted by the Midland Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. My name is Nikita Murray, and I am a member of the Midland Alumni Chapter, and I have been for the past 16 years. I've been a resident of Midland for nearly 30 years. As part of this conversation, we have been examining the book Disintegration, written by Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Eugene Robinson. In this particular book, Disintegration, the Splintering of Black America, Robinson makes the argument that over decades, incidents such as desegregation, affirmative action, immigration, and other events intended to evolve the Black community have left Black America somewhat shattered. And so instead of one Black America unified around a central theme, central interest, and collaborative needs, there are four splintered groups. The mainstream middle class, a large abandoned minority, a small transcendent elite, and two newly emergent groups, individuals of mixed race heritage and communities of recent black immigrants. So over the course of four podcast discussions, we have taken a look at each one of these groups. And today in our conversation, we're going to take a look at the abandoned minority, those considered by Robinson's terms with less hope of escaping poverty and dysfunction than at any other time in reconstruction or post-reconstruction. Now, what makes this an interesting lens through which to examine today's America and today's Black America, Robinson wrote this book 10 years ago and yet there remain parallels between the dialogue he attempted to stimulate 10 years ago and the conversation we're hoping to reignite through community conversations with the Deltas. And now that I've gone through that setup, I'd like to introduce you to our partner in this dialogue for today, Erin Walker, who also goes by Erin Patrice and I will let her briefly introduce herself in her own way. I think that does better justice for people when they can present their identity to others. Hey, Nikita, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it to be able to have this conversation. So again, my name is Erin Patrice. I have lived in Midland for, I think, about 15 or 16 years. I've raised four sons here, and majority of the time um, raising them, I was a single uh, mother here in Midland. Um, and I also am the host of the Breaking Bread Village conversation show, uh, where we just kind of talk to different people to have, um, you know, what I feel important conversations about things that are relevant to us in these times. So um, again, I just am very appreciative to be here today to have this conversation. Thanks. So then let's get it started. I know that you've read the book also, and you've participated in different aspects of this conversation that we're looking to have in our community because you're invested, just like you just said. 
you lived here, you visited here before you lived here, you raised your family here. And so you have deep roots in this community as well. And so I wanted to just start out with, in general, what are your thoughts about how Robinson identifies the abandoned majority within the African-American or Black community? I really find it very interesting when he when he uh, describes them as abandoned. Um, that is a really powerful word to me um, because, you know, I think about, um, you know, people with abandonment issues or, you know, people that deal with trauma based on being abandoned. And um, it's like forgotten. That's what abandoned, I mean, you kind of are a forgotten group uh, that is, is large. It's actually a very large group, um, but it is uh, forgotten. And I like when he said too, you know, in regards to, uh, that loss of hope with having that less hope right now. You know, I think that's really important because when you think of things, even um, in regards to, I'll, I'll even bring it back to this recent election. Um, a lot of members in the abandoned group voted. I mean, they, they, they rallied together. Um, they, they showed up. Yeah. They showed up and, and it was a lot of women, black women um, and Latino women that came together and really showed up in, in communities and, and rallied together, got people um, engaged and excited and encouraged. And again, we see a lot of times that when that happens, it's still not really acknowledged. Um, you still get kind of forgotten when it comes that time for different laws and policies to come through. So I don't know. I just, I just, I liked how he really pinpointed it as abandoned because that was a really powerful word. Cause I looked it up, even though, you know, you know what abandoned means you look it up. Cause I like to see different crosswords and different things that uh, kind of relate to that. And it was really deep to me in regards to that forgotten group. So, I, I mean, I like that he said it that way because it really brought it home for me. Well, and even when you think about the word abandoned, I like that you've taken us there because that implies intention, yes. right? Yes. And choice. So there is a deliberate decision being made about a segment of people without regard to what will happen to them, but even just the intentionality around it. We talk a lot about that today and being intentional and being purposeful and all of right. that, but we don't really apply that to deliberately creating or maintaining systems of separation. And then some might argue systems of caste within our population. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, because when you think about, um, even when people say, like, you know, Black-on-Black black crime, that's usually referred to that population. That's that's usually the population that is kind of targeted towards. Um, but when you think back about, you know, stuff like in regarding, uh, you know, redlining or, you know, the way the ghettos and, and different projects were designed, this was all intentional to have a group of people that people didn't see worth in. You know, if you don't have um, a certain class or... If you don't have a certain type of education or if you are um, don't have, a, you know, money or, or whatever, clout, whatever word you want to use, um, you are kind of designated to go into that group of the abandoned people. And, and you think about the whole part of it. I mean, it's hard to have hope when you when you believe that people don't find you worthy, when people don't see you, when people aren't hearing you, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's another part of that where I think that the banner group, when it says that less hope, I think about PTSD, you know, people always talk about PTSD when they talk about like military or things of that nature, but I really love talking to people about P 
PTSD within those communities because it's traumatic. <laughs> it's hard. You know, when you see certain things all the time, you hear certain things, you go to school, you don't have books, um, you can't afford, you know, computers or different things like that. Um, or, you know, you have a lot of children that go there that, you know, haven't eaten you know, they, you don't, I mean, you, you can't even expect them to be a student because you don't know if they had, you know, uh, hot water or if they ate that morning or, you know, if mama or daddy was home. It's, it's a lot of different parts of that. So when you think about that and the PTSD and that abandonment, and that loss of, you know, hope, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an epidemic and it's been, like you said, strategically kind of placed within those communities. And thank you for introducing the piece about trauma. Um, which is something that I talk a great deal about in my work as, you know, a diversity consultant in my work as a licensed professional counselor and just everything that I do. And mm -hmm. we don't spend adequate time really breaking down how racism is traumatic for those who experience it. And there is, a, so racism is traumatic and then there is a trauma that occurs just by virtue of you being part of that abandoned class. And the whole idea of what you experience in community violence and secondary um, trauma and or vicarious trauma. So trauma you experience by watching your friends be beaten up, right, in school. Um, and fearful that that same thing is going to happen to you or having your neighbor's home broken into or being the elderly person left in the one house on the one street that's uh, overtaken by, right, that's overtaken by weeds. Of course you're afraid. Of course you um, are experiencing life in this hypersensitive response and fear for what's going to happen to you. And so... When we frequently talk about the abandoned, I think we also, and when I say we, I'm not necessarily talking, talking about Robinson, although he does make several examples that point in this direction, but we also forget that there are people who are doing good things, but still end up in this particular category through no fault of their own. It's not that they're lazy, which is the myth about Black people, not that they're spending all of their money on other stuff and not a homeowner, for example, and yet they still find themselves in this category. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a vicious cycle because, I mean, you know, you think about even uh, if you try to, you know, um, uh, get a car loan or some type of loan or, or some type of, uh, you know, even car insurance, they check your credit, you know, so if you have bad credit, because you haven't been given certain opportunities or you haven't gotten, um, you know, certain resources, then you can't get car insurance. Um, so you have to pay these high, you know, they, they rob you um, when you don't have a certain type of car, you know, when you can't get a certain type of car insurance. So then you end up paying $300, $400 a month, which who can afford that? So you don't pay it, right? So now you're driving around dirty. Um, and then if you get stopped by a cop, now you have a ticket. Now you either have to choose to miss work where you work in a place maybe where they're not very tolerant. You don't have a lot of sick days or you don't have vacation buildup. So you can take off, right? So if you do uh, miss work, you have a possibility of getting fired because it's one of those jobs that's, you know, very replaceable, where you're very replaceable. Um, so, or you have to like skip the court date, right? 
I mean, it's just this vicious cycle that because you're poor or because you don't have certain resources or uh, because you don't live in a certain part of town that you miss out on. And then it's just it just is never ending, you know? Right. And no one to advocate for you to say that there is no correlation between why a person's auto insurance should be higher because they have credit issues. Exactly. Like one thing doesn't have, have anything to do with the other, because if you don't pay your insurance, it's going to get canceled on the spot. So it's a part of what we celebrate as capitalism and free market thinking and all of that. So then let's take a different term. Well, no, let's step back a minute because we we're talking about Robinson and in general, how he talked about the abandoned. And sure. I think one of his examples that he uses fits nicely with what we're talking about. And so he took us back to Katrina mm -hmm. and how many of those individuals experienced that event differently than what was reported to us in the media and differently than we've come to cling to in terms of how we chose to see that event. So then when you know that there are people who legitimately thought, oh, okay, well, we have time to escape this because that's the information that they were given. Or you have people who were given information, but no resources to, to uh, escape. And then the whole idea, and I remember this just unset being, um, I can't find a word for it, but it just didn't settle well for me at the time when it happened and referring to US citizens as refugees. And I can yeah. clearly remember like the Reverend Jesse Jackson being irate around that. And it's like, stop calling these people refugees. These are citizens of the United States. But yet that really pulled back the cover on how people of color, people who live in poverty, are viewed in this country. And they th that's a whole different level of othering of people when you call them refugees. And yet, when you think about some of the things that happen in terms of microaggressions, it fits right along with that. And, you know, treating people like they're a stranger in their own land. When you mm -hmm. ask them, oh, where are you from? Or how did you get here? That's creating refugees. So we've had this great discussion so far around, you know, the abandoned, what it looks like, how Robinson talks about it. But how does the abandoned look for a community like Midland County? The sound well, different? Like, what are your thoughts around that? So I'll say this, when I first moved here, um, you know, I was looking for low income housing because I was, had low income. And, you know, people took me to these, I mean, really nice, <laughs> really nice apartments, right? So it's like, oh, wow, this is really nice, you know? And this is low income, because where I was from, which is in Cincinnati, I mean, low income, you drove through and you knew it was low income, right? And you saw people out on the streets. I mean, it just was a whole different um visual for me. So when I moved here, I understood immediately that in this community, they did not want the abandoned to be seen. 
right? They wanted them to be hidden um, and kind of blend in, not quite blend in, but blend in enough where it didn't scare people who were possibly coming here to to live. Um, so I think that it's interesting when you live in places like this because people assume that that everybody kind of has the same type of opportunities uh, because it's like, oh, well, this place has so many resources, but they're not always offered to everybody and everybody's not privy to the different resources. And I specifically, and, I, and I'm talking about more so with classism with that, um, but specifically within our black community, it's definitely here. We have all four here. <laughs> we have all four of those groups here. And the abandoned here within the black community is very interesting because, um, a lot of the people that are said to be the the higher up, the more elite, uh, they came from very humble beginnings, right? So when you hear that, you're like, oh, well, we all kind of connect some type of way, right? Because even though the abandoned may not be quite where you are right now, you you were here at one point in time, right? So it's this idea that there should be this connecting and this whole thing of reaching back, you know, that whole that whole, you know, model of kind of reach back down, reach back to help somebody else come up. And sometimes I don't find that to be true here. It's almost this idea that if you don't work it down, um, you know, if you don't work at the hospital, um, if you don't work within the school system, you're not really a part of certain groups. So you're also um, forgotten. So it's really interesting because here, I think, at least in the city, you can clearly see the differences. You can clearly see them um, and you all kind of could get into our, you know, our little pockets and be able to, uh, you know, kind of connect. But here, I think it's a little bit more hidden on purpose, intentionally. I would agree with that. And as you were talking, I was reminded of a story that I used to tell. Um, when I was still relatively new here and coming into town for the very first time for my for my interview for the job that brought me here, with, which was not with Dow, um, there was this house that was on the main business route coming into town. And I had not seen anything like that outside the hood, you know, mm -hmm. so... So being from Detroit and being from inner city Detroit and, and just knowing um, some of the areas where, you know, there are definitely houses that look like that. I was like, where, what is this place I'm coming to? Where am I going? Mm -hmm. um, and a little while later, the owners of that house were made to put a covering on it to fix it up. So even if they were not going to sell it, and even though it was still unoccupied, it couldn't stay there dilapidated. Mm. And so that just really speaks to the point that you were making about how, you know, this, the area is intentional about projecting a particular image. Yeah. Um, and I think people, unwittingly buy into that when I think of the number of times and I know you um, were a hairdresser in town at one time so you could probably relate to this but mm. just going to what's supposed to be the beauty supply store and asking for different things and being so without hesitation oh you can get that in Saginaw and so it was just frustrating to be constantly told you can get hair products, you can get skin products, you can get pantyhose, which are universal. 
right um in Saginaw so you're telling me I've got to drive 25 30 minutes away to get a pair of pantyhose like that's what you're saying to me because you refuse to carry those things in town you know I'm sure there will be people who will listen to this and say but yeah but now you can get makeup at CVS if you want to okay that's 30 years later. 30 years later, I'm not wearing makeup like I did when I was at that age that brought me here. But it's good for those who come behind. So I like how you use the word forgotten. And I think that's a, a word that will be easier for people to swallow. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's irrelevant when you think, okay, forgotten, like if you forget something, you know, sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's kind of not, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, wow, I, I, I for, you know, it's like you kind of put them outside your mind because think about it, if you have something that you consider an eyesore or something that uh, doesn't give you a good feeling or you feel like uh, is yucky or what, you kind of put it outside your mind. You try to not focus on it. And I think that that's what, that's what I visualize when I think about forgotten or abandoned. It's almost this idea that um, that's something that is just deplorable to me. I don't want to even focus on that because it could uh, kind of ignite this idea of guilt um, or pity or sorrow or remembrance. Like, oh, I used to be that, but I'm not there anymore, but I don't quite do anything in the hood anymore. I don't do anything in that community anymore. So it's easier for me to kind of throw it away as opposed to, kind of do the work and see it as, as what it is, because it's, it's guilt, because if I'm not helping, if I'm not doing anything, then I feel bad. But if I just kind of don't pay attention to it, then I can just go on with my life as if it's not there. So as we talk about being abandoned, how much of gender plays into how you view being abandoned or forgotten in Midland? Well, I guess I can speak from personal experience having boys here, black men here um, that play sports. Most, you know, three of my sons play sports and they were pretty popular because, I mean, people like athletes for some reason. Um, and, you know, they were tall, you know, I believe they're handsome. Um, so, you know, they were really sought after by, you know, the young ladies here and they were kind of easily a little bit more accepted. Um, so I do think that gender plays a role when it comes to black females here because we have such a stereotype attached to us, you know, that we're problematic. Um, we are easily, uh, you know, angered or we're aggressive, um, you know, and then our body shape is different. You know, when people are used to one certain body shape and then you got this girl come in with hips and butt and, you know, different things. It just, it just is a whole package that sometimes people are afraid of because it's unfamiliar. So I think when that happens, people then get, scared of it and they just kind of don't want to pay attention to it so i know a lot of young ladies that i spoke to that dealt with that um growing up in midland having mentored young people in town um over several years i can yeah also attest to what you're saying and yet in some ways i feel as though i could relate to them coming here you know in my 20s um being single finding it difficult to find people to date, finding it difficult to have people with whom to even just socialize. So when I came to town, I didn't come to work for the major corporation. I came to work for the newspaper. And so that gave me the camaraderie of the people with whom I worked. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a community 
Yeah, I went through the same thing. I mean, I'm a young, and I was, you know, I was fresh out the city. So I came here like, where am I at? <laughs> what is this? You know, and you have young children, um, but you still want to, you know, have a balance in your life. And there was nothing. So at my jobs, you know, I was always taller too, and you know, plus size. So when you have all these different things and I speak clearly and speak my mind, people are intimidated by that. And you know, I actually, I remember I asked, several white gentlemen i mean just because i'm i want to understand things so i'm like what is it why don't white men approach black women because i'm surrounded by white men and not that i just wanted people to just flock over me but i was very curious and um i remember one guy told me that you know we're intimidated we're kind of you know we don't know what to say what to do and it's like oh well i'm human just talk to me <laughs> you're right hello let's start there so really even as we're starting to dive into how abandoned or abandonment can look different compared to how Robinson talks about it and how it looks in this community there is this overwhelming sense or this connecting piece around adaptability that connects all four groups that he talks about, but probably makes it harder for people in that abandoned population, whether they're financially abandoned, socially, professionally, holistically, let's just say it that way. Um, and so I think that for people who are listening in and want to understand that for the community that we're in, and we can look at it from a holistic perspective because yeah, we probably won't find a whole lot of African-Americans who are truly part of that lower wage earning community. There are some, and we would be mistaken to think that there aren't. However, I would also probably argue that the majority of abandoned-like experience connect back to what we were just talking about. And even in terms of finding a place. So I came here as a Black professional to work as a journalist for the newspaper, but I had no connection to other Black people. And it wasn't until there was a Black church that someone told me about and it was newly for me that I truly got on this path to finding my people, if I will. Sure. And I had my friends who are white and my longtime friends, but my friends who are white and I met them in this community, they point to that time as a time when they saw a shift in me in terms of my own mm -hmm. happiness. Um, because they understood that I was not, I was not happy. And so coming from a place like Detroit, where there's a church on every other corner, literally, there's a church on every other corner, the one where the big excitement is, oh, there's a, a Black church starting now. And, you know, it was so new that it was normal to me to, to be at this place with people meeting um, while they were renting a spot. And so Talk to me a little bit about adaptability and what that has looked like for you um, and, and how that has kept you from being deeply abandoned. 
Oh, wow. So when I first moved here, I moved here in the wintertime. So it was snowing probably about 14 days straight. I mean, literally like 14 days, like blizzard type, heavy snow. So it was just all white outside. I remember going to a mire, which was pretty new. And I walk in and I just remember being overwhelmed, like almost like not a panic attack, but just like, whoa, where I, I just stopped in my in my tracks because I looked out, you know, when you first walk in Mario, you can kind of see far out throughout the store. Mm-hmm. It was nothing but white people. And I had never seen that. I didn't realize that I had never seen that. Um, even growing up in Cincinnati, I mean, you go to different other parts, you know, neighborhoods, and you see a majority of white people, but you'll see black, you know, still there speckled in. When I walked in there, I saw no one of color. I saw no nobody that looked even remotely close to me. Um, and I remember being so overwhelmed. So I'll never forget, and this is a guy out truth, I called a friend of mine and I said, it's white outside, it's white inside, it's white everywhere here. And I was just <laughs> I was so overwhelmed because I I never, I just never, never saw that. So with that said, when I, you know, I love doing hair. I loved, you know, uh, doing things for myself. And I remember going to the store and there was nothing at that time. There was nothing in the stores. Right. And you tell me, oh, you know, they have it in Saginaw. And I remember thinking, but I live right here. Like I literally live here. So, you know, I remember thinking too, how back home, I could find stuff everywhere, you know, and of course it was cheaper. It was more accessible. Um, and, you know, it just was second nature. So I, I just remember being overwhelmed by that too. Like, where am I going to get stuff for myself? And this is, this, these are things that make you feel better about yourself, you know, feel more empowered, feel, you know, if you're going for an interview or for anything, you know, these are things that you need almost like necessity to keep yourself going. Right. Um, that was difficult. Then when I took my children to school and I'm getting them registered and, there were no black children in the schools. I mean, none. And this was this was a time where if you took a, a, a class picture, your child was possibly going to be the only person in the class of color. And I just remember that. I remember feeling like, oh my goodness, how, you know, and I remember my, my son Vincent coming home at a very young age in elementary. And he said to me that a child would not play with him because his skin was that color. And he pointed to the outside of his hand. And um, and he was so sad, but he also said, but the inside is the same. Like he pointed to the inside of his hand. He didn't understand why the outside mattered because the inside was the same of their hands. You know, it was this idea that, you know, of course, Millen Public Schools um, is always ranked very high, um, very good education, it's free education. And, and you know, and, and as you know, in the inner city, a lot of times you have to pay for private school or charter school, some type of things like that, Catholic school, to be able to get, a, a, you know, a, a right. decent education. Um, so it was a lot of things where everybody kept telling me, well, it's a good place to, to raise your children and, you know, it's a good place to go to school. But then I thought, I said, but what am I doing to them spiritually? What am I doing to them emotionally? What am I, you know, I, it was tough for me to balance that, to be able to say, okay, is this the place for them? Because in the long run, how am I truly um, imparting a certain type of pride, representation, um, empowerment, being in a community like this. It, it was it was hard at first. It was hard for me to really get acclimated and to adjust. And we hear people talk about and share their stories, not just talk about it, but really share their experiences, share their stories as part of being 
trailblazers in this community. Um, we refer to them as the roots sure. uh, for the community. You know, in, in those first waves of African professional African Americans to come here um, and to really lay down the foundation for others to come. However, if we're still having the same conversation 20, 30 years later, how much progress has truly been made? So yes, you do have a selection of hair care products at some of the local stores and you do have a surprising amount of cosmetics available in town. That's great. Um, but there are other people who benefit from that, even across the four categories, because even if there might be more people of color in, in the city proper, I would argue that you still have Black people or biracial people Mm -hmm. who live in the county who can still be who still need all of that same stuff so it's it's really a financial issue more so than a social justice issue right that could be driving that change and I think that's something interesting to explore but then you know I like your point I appreciate your point about what resonated with me as psychological safety because we can't hands down it's one of the safest places to live in Michigan and in the nation. We know that we've seen the statistics, we've read the story, but if it's not psychologically and emotionally safe, is it still safe? No, I, you know, I, I have to tell you a quick thing. I remember taking the boys uh, to Saginaw one time. We were visiting some new friends that I had or whatever. We were over there because I was trying to keep them connected to to black people because I just it was just so different for me. Um, so we're we're there and I'll never forget. I think something like a, a loud sound went off. It wasn't a gun, but it was a loud sound. And I'll never forget my oldest son. Um, and he had never really been to Saginaw. So he, I didn't talk to him about Saginaw. So where he got this from must have been from someone else. But I'll never forget that he said, oh, we need to get back to, we need to get back home to Midland because that's, you know, it's safer there basically is what he was trying to say. You know, we're, we're kind of in danger. And I remember thinking, where did he get that from? You know, and, and that's when it really like kind of hit me, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, and then fast forward to years later when, you know, they would tell me stories of different things. They would, um, stuff that was said to them at school when people would call them the N word or would try to touch their hair, or even their friends, quote unquote, would, uh, you know, make jokes that they thought was, was funny. Um, at their expense, of course. And I just remember thinking, what did I do? You know, um, at what cost, you know, um, do you, do you uh, put your children in a certain environment and what are they losing and what are they truly gaining? You know, so it was imperative for me to invest in them to make sure that they heard every day. They, they were beautiful. They were Kings. They were, they could do whatever they wanted because I felt like I had kind of set them up. You know, um, I remember, and I cannot remember the quote at this moment, but it's one of my favorite ones that Dr. King uh, said, and this was after, this is the ones people don't really like to quote, quote about him. Um, you know, towards the end of his life, he had a change, you know, um, in different philosophies that he had, but, basically he was saying yes we did all this we had a civil rights and i'm paraphrasing of course you know the civil rights movement and all this good stuff but 
have I have I like kind of led my people into into the you know slaughter? It was it was to that effect where he started questioning, um, you know, did he make the right choice? And I just remember that when it comes um, to my children in regards to to living in Midland. And I think as adults, we can we have the gift of hindsight. So sure. even having the opportunity to know your boys when they were itty bitties and now know them as grown men, mm -hmm. um, they too get the gift of hindsight. And so they can better peel off what has worked for them and what wasn't healthy for them. And I think we're all that same way. And so when we look at the ways in which we have had to adapt and we can either step away or we have something else to compare it to, then that is helpful in guiding us toward the work that we're supposed to do here while we're still here mm -hmm. um, and next steps. So if I had checked out during my first month here where I literally could not find a place to stay, not because I had bad credit, not because you know I showed up looking crazy, but because I showed up to my housing appointments looking black. That, that was it. I would call, I would make the appointment, I would talk with the people, you know, tell them about myself, tell them where I was working, we'd schedule a time, I'd show up, no one would come to the door. They would be excited while they're talking to you. They would be excited, while, yep, and then show up and couldn't get in. And so few people know that for the first month that I lived in Midland, I actually stayed out at Northwood and went home on the weekends. Um, ate at Bill Knapp's <laughs> every evening for a month. Um, and much like you questioned, what am I doing? What, what, what did I just do, really? What did I just yeah. do? Um, and so it's a lot of work to adapt when you don't have that corporate structure. Back to your original point when we started this, when you don't have that corporate structure, that's bringing you in. So then off the bat, people are making assumptions about your financial ability, which I'm not gonna pretend newspapers don't pay a whole lot of money, but I wasn't broke either. But at the same time, um, you don't have that structure in place that integrates you into the community or advocates for you the community when things aren't going the way that they need to. Now I will say, um, that my supervisor, the late Don Winger, was livid when he found out that I that this was happening to me. And there were a couple of other points during my career working for him where clearly I was experiencing the brunt of racism and he had to check a couple people on my behalf um, and on behalf of the right thing to do. So even if it wasn't necessarily on my behalf, he checked them on the on behalf of the right thing to do. So I, I feel like it's important to say that, but then I also don't want people to lose fact that there are people here today who are still experiencing the community as unwelcoming. 
You know, I, and, and again, and anybody that's probably ever heard me talk on this subject has heard me mention representation. Representation is huge to me, and I'll talk about it until things change. Um, that's one big thing, because you asked a question earlier, um, you know, where have we come? How far have we come? since you know the people that came here in the 70s or the families that came here in the 60s and 80s where we come and to me we still have a long way to go um you know <laughs> we i i help people um in the hospital when they have their babies um and i just remember this was just last year 2020 um i'm walking through the hallways because she was having um some 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 issues um, and then they got her kind of calmed down. So I kind of walked the halls and kind of step away from uh, the moment. I, I just remember looking at the uh, the walls, the pictures, you know, they have the little photographs of babies kind of curled up. There was not one African-American baby. And I know people had babies here because I had one of mine. Um, when I was actually here for a holiday, I went into labor. Um, so I know people have had babies here. And I just remember thinking, wow, I wonder if there is a scared black mother, you know, coming in here about to have her baby, she could have complications, and she sees no type of representation, no, not many nurses, uh, not many doctors sometimes, um, and no, no pictures on the wall, how would you feel when you don't ever feel like you're represented, do you feel, do you feel feel comforted? Do you feel like um, a, a sense of safety? You know, if you never see uh, pictures on the wall at your school or in books at your school or uh, the teachers even in the school, you don't have a teacher that you can go to that looks like you or even that you can aspire to be like, where are we at? <laughs> what do you have? Definitely with that um, representation piece, as we get ready to close, it reminds me of the opportunities I've had to serve on various boards and being engaged with different organizations over the whole time that I've, I've been here. Some are still in existence, some aren't. Um, and yet I think of how when I am in the home improvement store or I'm ordering something or I'm inquiring about something, to this day, people will, they won't ask me my address. They'll ask me, where do you live? Or do you live in Saginaw? I'm like, yes. okay, think about how stupid that question is. Right. <laughs> and why would you assume that Midland is so great? I would come here from Saginaw. Like that's the, pro that's the process that yes. people aren't critically thinking through when they respond. And yet, I mean, like, my, microaggressions like that happen all the time. And so just imagine for the people then who are somewhat underground in terms of poverty as a yep. person of color. You know, if you're a person of, of color and you're of a particular socioeconomic status, you are kind of invisible. You are. So where are you going to get your help? And, and I know that from the paper. I know that from being a counselor. I know that from having worked in the domestic violence, sexual assault area. Poor black people in this city are invisible. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I think I shared this with you before, but 
me and my children have the same last name because, you know, I was married to their father. And um, when I first moved here, people would literally always ask me, you know, what's the father's names? When I was filling out paperwork, what's the father? They would always assume that I had multiple fathers, which I'm not dogging anybody that does, but I didn't. And the fact that they assumed that was very interesting to me. I just remember that so vividly, like, uh, fathers, why would you assume that about me, you know? And um, see, my, I get the, are you from Saginaw? People always say, Saginaw? They always say, say, or they ask me, am I passing through? Especially if I go to the gas station, are you passing through? Where are you coming from? Down the road, down right down the street, I live a block away. You know, that's always my response because, and they always look kind of perplexed. Like, what? Oh, oh, it's like, yeah, we're, we're here. We live here. What's the takeaway? For me, on this particular uh, subject, when we talk about abandoned, abandoned and forgotten, because all of this kind of goes hand in hand within our own Black communities and within the community of Midland, um, and when you think about classism. So the takeaway for me is to keep fighting, keep educating, keep speaking up, um, and making like specific change, purposeful, intentful change um, to help uh, you know, kind of bridge this gap. And thank you, Erin, for joining us for episode three, what we're calling podcast three of this community conversation with the Deltas around disintegration, the splintering of Black America. I think I think we had a pretty um, in-depth discussion today, and I hope that all of our listeners learned something. Thank you very much.